welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. But God remembered Noah. He sent a wind to blow across the earth, and the floodwaters began to recede. The underground waters stopped flowing, and the torrential rains from the sky were stopped. So the floodwaters gradually receded from the earth. After 150 days from the time the flood began, the boat came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Two and a half months later, as the waters continued to go down, other mountain peaks became visible. The Book of Genesis, Chapter 8, Verses 1-5, through New Living Translation Hello, I'm Victoria Kay, welcoming you to another episode of Anchored by Truth. I'm in the studio today with R.D. Fierro, author and founder of Crystal Sea Books. R.D., I understand that today you want to continue our discussion about Noah and the flood that's described in the book of Genesis. We've been talking about Noah for a few episodes now. Ardeep, would you like to say hello to the Anchored by Truth audience and catch us up on some of the important ideas that we've been discussing? Sure. I'd like to welcome everybody to another episode of Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. For today's episode, let's start by reminding people that the Bible makes it clear that the story of Noah is one of the major steps in God's unfolding plan of redemption. But it couldn't be a real step in a real plan of redemption if the story wasn't real history. So that's the first really big point. The Bible treats the story of Noah as literal history. A second major point is that because Noah's story is real, we should be able to find evidence of the story's historicity in at least four different areas. The origin and after-effects of the flood itself, the ark, the animals, and anthropology and genetics. Now, by origin, I'm obviously thinking about the very basic question of where did all that water come from. By after-effects, I'm including the paleontological and geological evidence that we should be able to see if the Earth was at one time suddenly submerged underwater. The question about the ark and the animals, I think, is pretty self-evident. And by anthropology and genetics, I'm referring to the fact that flood stories exist in hundreds of different cultures around the world, and that in genetics, if at one time all of the population of the earth was killed, except for eight people who survived on an ark, well, we would see evidence of a major bottleneck in the world's population today by looking at DNA. And in fact, we'll cover in one of our episodes, that is exactly what we see. Now, a third major point that we've been talking about is that unlike some other personalities from the Bible, say Samson or Solomon, the Bible never tells us that Noah had any special ability of his own. So the only reason we know about Noah today is because in a world of unrighteous people, Noah was willing to obey God. So we know about Noah today, not because some special peculiar ability he had, 
but because Noah was willing to obey God. Well, I think that sets the stage pretty well. Before we go too far along into the heavy stuff, let's start off on the lighter side with one of Crystal C. Book's Life Lessons with a Laugh. This one will reinforce the historical reasonability of the Ark's design as related by the Bible. Hi, I'm R.D. Fierro from Crystal Sea Books, here today on the open water to... Open water? Dude, we're in a rowboat, in a pond, and the pond is between a shopping mall and an apartment complex. As I was saying before my geographically enamored, engaged, engrossed, and enthralled companion here, uh... Jerry. Still Jerry. Always Jerry. Not Jerome, or Your Majesty, or... Okay, uh, still always Your Majesty... Let's not let minor mundane minutiae about marine morphology muddle our main mission to meditate more methodically on the maritime marvel. My goodness, how does he say all that? On the maritime marvel that was the ark that Norman built. I think you mean Noah. That's what he went by for the history books. Not sure what the guys at the big box boat building and bungalow betterment store might have called him. Hey, do we have any more ark pitch in the back? Not sure. How much you need? Old guy up here wants 6,400 camels worth. I mean, the Ark had to be truly remarkable if it was going to withstand a storm that made Hurricane Camille look like a whacked-out sprinkler system. Spikes, spikes, and yikes. Never thought about that. Guess a monstrously marauding monsoon of megalithic magnitude might be a boat builder's worst nightmare. Literally. I couldn't have said it better, always stilled your majesty. Well, maybe a little better, literally. But that's not what's important. Right now, what's important is to recognize the naval architecture challenge that faced Norway. Noah. And he sort of had a big head start on designing the ark, didn't he? After all, the Bible did say that the Lord told him how long, how high, and how wide the ark should be. Absolutely, my dimensionally discriminating deckmate. The Lord told Noah to make the ark somewhere around 600 feet long by 100 feet wide and 60 feet deep. In other words, the Lord answered that very important question, How deep is your ark? How deep is your ark? How deep is your ark? I really need to learn Cause the world is going down I don't want to drown So it's me you need to show The Lord has let me know Although actually, the Lord gave Noah the dimension in cubits, not in feet. 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits deep. A cubit? Wasn't there some disagreement on how long a cubit was? Wouldn't it have been easier for the Lord to just use the metric system? Uh, not sure, Jerbed. I'm not an expert on mid-third millennial B.C. design parameters, material takeoff systems, or computer-aided design functionality. But, since a cubit was generally considered to be the length of a man's forearm, it did vary a bit from culture to culture. Hmm. Well, the ratios would have been the same in any case. But seems like the hardware stores would have used short-arm people to measure lumber for sale. Uh, let's leave the link between the anatomical, nautical, structural, and mechanical alone for a moment, Jerbit, and reposition our rudder to the original course. After all, 
As the old saying goes, a floppy rudder endangers a distressed dinghy. Hey, I'm not the one with the floppy rudder. All right, where is it you want to go? Same place the Lord was headed when he gave Noah the Ark dimensions. Stability in rough seas. The Lord wanted to be sure that the Ark would be stable when the winds were lashing and the waves were crashing. Well, the Lord does know a thing or two about staying upright on the water, doesn't he? I mean, who else just walks across it without losing his footing? Exactamundo, Jerwasserman. It turns out that the Ark dimensions the Lord gave Noah are very similar to those used to build modern ocean-going vessels because they produce a design which is extremely stable in rough seas. Scale-sized models built with the Ark's biblical dimensions have been tested at world-class ship design facilities and have been shown that they can withstand waves as high as 100 feet. Hmm, never thought about that. Wish someone had built this rowboat like that. You almost tipped it over when you got in. I told you not to eat that fourth donut this morning. And there you go again, Gerblaze. Sometimes you have more insights than a millipede has legs. Again, a critter I wish they'd left off the ark. Whatever, Gerbug. But you see the main point, right? Even before the rains began, the Lord was making sure the ark would make it through some rough seas. He still does that for us today. True dat, if you pay attention to his word. True dat. The Lord knows the seas of life can swamp us if we don't build our lives according to his blueprint. Hey, are we moving? You're not even rowing. True dat. But the kid who rented us the boat kept a rope tied on the back. You mean the stern. You mean the stern. I mean the back, because I told him to reel us back in after five minutes so I can get me some salted caramel frozen yogurt from the stall next to the boat rental place. Yes, yes. Keep pulling us in there, Skippy. Ah, Jergert, your sense for exotic ice cream indulgences is inexorably indisputable. The Lord knows the way to keep the storm at bay, so let him have his say. Pray and obey, at work or at play, and he won't delay to help you be okay. Again, Jergert, you have done a fine job of selecting tasty toppings from that big ice cream bar of biblical wisdom. The secret is to make sure you look over the whole selection first so you don't miss the good stuff down at the end. Well, that's it from Jeremy. Uh, Still, Jerry. Me, R.D., and the whole Crystal Sea Open Water crew for today. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com where... We're not famous, but our boss is. Okay. I think I counted six or seven different names you used for Jerry in that exchange. I'm kind of amazed how much information you two actually manage to exchange while you keep playing ping pong with something as simple as Jerry's name. Well, the challenge is keeping up with Jerry's ability to return serve. He doesn't really let me get away with much. So I've noticed. But in between the Jermajesties and the Jerbits, I noticed that you brought out one of the points that we've covered in our life lesson in the previous episode. The fact that the dimensions of the ark that God gave to Noah helped produce a very stable ocean-going vessel. In the life lesson we heard previously, we heard that the ark had the size to carry a vast cargo of animals and their food. In this humor piece, you pointed out that the ark's dimensions, as described in the Bible, provide a design that is very stable in rough seas. So, 
Insofar as the arc is concerned, we've now shown that the arc's size and stability are consistent with what we know about the real world. Is that one of the points you want to make? Yep. And in the humor piece we're planning for next time, we're going to talk about the arc's strength. So the life lessons are helping people have a great start in thinking about what kind of vessel would be necessary to successfully survive a flood of biblical proportions. In other words, would it have the necessary size, stability, and strength? So that's one of the four lines of evidence that can be cited to demonstrate that the Genesis account is an accurate record of a historical event, that the ark, as described by the Bible, was in fact suitable for its intended purpose. So now let's take a look at one of the other lines of evidence for the historicity of the flood story, the origin and after effects of the flood. Sounds good. Where do you want to begin? Well, let's start with a relatively simple point. Where did all the water come from? Well, the Bible tells us that contrary to most of the cartoonish portrayals of the major source of the flood, the source of the flood came from down below, not from above. Genesis chapter 7 verse 11 tells us that in the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened. So the Bible shows us that the water came first from sources deep within the earth's crust. Exactly. And the fact that there is enough water present on the face of the earth to cover all of the land that's on the earth is very well known, and it's been known for over a century. Even Charles Darwin's colleague, Alfred Russell Wallace, famously wrote that if the surface of the earth were smoothed out, the entire globe would be covered with water about two miles deep, and he wrote well over a hundred years ago. Well, we now know that Wallace was pretty close in his estimate, and today, based on our much improved knowledge of the earth's geography and geology, we know that the actual depth that the earth would be submerged in water, again, if the surface of the earth were entirely smoothed out, the actual depth would be about one and two-thirds miles. So, more than a century ago, Wallace was pretty doggone close. So, there's plenty of water available on the earth to submerge all the land. But is there evidence that all the land on the earth was at one time submerged? Actually, there is. There are vast stretches of the planet covered by layers of sedimentary rocks. And sedimentary rocks are the type of rocks that are formed by the deposit and subsequent cementation of mineral or organic particles from a flowing body of water. These kinds of deposits regularly happen on the floor of oceans or under other bodies of water on the Earth's surface. One of the best known is the so-called Coconino sandstone that's found in the Grand Canyon as well as in considerable distances to the east. And the Coconino sandstone has an average thickness of almost 300 feet. And if you combine that with the equivalent sandstones that are found to the east, it covers an area of almost 200,000 square miles. So it's hard to see how you would have had a body of sedimentary material like the Coconino sandstone formed unless at one time that entire portion of the Earth's surface was covered by water. Moreover, there is fossil evidence that demonstrates that some of the highest geological structures on the Earth were at one point underwater. 
And in fact, the fossil evidence also demonstrates that large numbers of animals were at one point buried very suddenly and in groups that contained mixtures of land and marine animals. Now, a gentleman named Harold Coffin has penned a very good article that's available on BibleInfo.com entitled, Is There Evidence That the Flood Was Global? And that particular article has some very good examples of the fossil evidence that's available to support the contention that the Earth was, at one time, entirely submerged. Why don't we mention one or two of the examples that Mr. Coffin cites? Sure. Well, there are massive graveyards of thousands and even millions of fish, dinosaurs, and mammals that are found in North America, Europe, and Africa. And the same is true of plants. From the Utah-Colorado region north to Alberta-Saskatchewan, Canada, thousands of dinosaurs are found in certain beds, such as the Morrison Formation. These sites, along with some others mentioned, reveal that great quantities of animals were buried together very suddenly, very rapidly. The rapid burial resulted in really good, in fact excellent preservation of the remains of the animals, and the position of a lot of the mammals that are found in the Morrison Formation suggest that the animals died by drowning. A worldwide catastrophe involving water is by far the easiest explanation for these observations. So part of the thinking is that such huge fossil beds wouldn't be present if all the animals hadn't been buried suddenly and simultaneously. And that would make them all having been covered suddenly by a huge volume of mud and silt. The easiest explanation for how that could happen is being caught unexpectedly in a catastrophic flood. I mean, if the water had risen gradually, or the flood hadn't been so extensive, they could have gotten away. Exactly. And such fossil evidence isn't limited to North America. In Brazil, there is a large plateau where fish fossils are found with the skin, muscles, and organs all preserved in very good detail. These fish fossils are abundant, and they're distributed over several thousand square miles. Well, the plateau where these fossils are found is well above sea level, and it's a good 500 miles from the Atlantic Ocean. So, only catastrophic conditions would have enabled such an extensive collection of animals and plants and fish to be so exquisitely preserved. The point is, then, that there is a lot of fossil evidence that is consistent with a sudden, widespread inundation of truly mammoth proportions. Naturally, we recognize that some non-Christians would offer a different explanation other than a worldwide flood. But that just means that there are two competing truth claims on the table, right? And the fact that there are competing explanations means people should investigate the evidence for themselves to decide which explanation is more credible. But you mentioned that in addition to fossils, there is also geologic evidence that is consistent with an ancient massive flood. Yes, but before I move away from the fossil evidence, I want to emphasize that the examples we're talking about today are exactly that. There are only a few examples. There are lots of others. In these radio episodes, we only have time to skim the surface, no pun intended, of the evidence available that supports the biblical flood account. There are entire books that have been written on the subject, as well as a lot of great resources from the Internet. Well, to quote Jerry from the Life Lesson, true that. We're really just starting the discussion here in the hope that listeners can take some time to investigate this subject for themselves. True that. So let's move on and take a brief look at some of the geological evidence. 
Now, we've already mentioned the presence of huge layers of sedimentary rocks that are found all over the world. And these include these huge layers of sedimentary rock that are found at levels far above current sea levels. Now, the most common and easy explanation for the fact that these huge layers of sedimentary rock are found is that mud or earth were at one time being carried along by huge volumes of water. Sediment is exactly what the term implies. It's earth or mud being carried along by moving water, and then it's deposited somewhere when the water slows down or disappears completely. And after it's deposited, then the sediments cement together. And in fact, while it's commonly thought that this sedimentation can only happen over an extended period of time, in fact, the 2011 tsunami that struck Japan showed that you can deposit sedimentary layers as much as many kilometers inland from the ocean, and that tsunami formed layers of up to 20 centimeters thick. And that was just a single event that occurred in a very short period of time. So if you can deposit a sedimentary layer 20 centimeters thick from a single tsunami, imagine the size of the event that it would have taken to form sedimentary layers that are hundreds of meters thick. But people who don't accept the biblical account might say that these layers were built up over thousands or millions of years, and not in a single catastrophic incident. Well, they could. But when geologists examine these layers, they don't see the evidence that the sedimentary layers were built up in successive events. If successive events were involved, geologists would expect to see either soil formation between the layers or evidence of organic activity, such as holes from burrowing insects or plant roots. But such soil formation or bioturbation is absent in many of these really thick layers. In general, the deeper the layer of sedimentary rock, the larger the amount of sediment that must have been deposited in a relatively short amount of time, and thus the greater the volume and flow of the water that was involved. Again, if a single tsunami deposited sediment layers up to 20 centimeters thick, imagine how much water would have been involved to create a sediment layer hundreds of times thicker than that. So both the fossil evidence and the geologic evidence are both consistent with a flood of biblical proportions. Absolutely. And the geological evidence is not limited to just the presence of massive layers of sedimentary rocks present all over the earth. Geologists now also acknowledge that many of the great river valleys all over the world were also created by truly epic floods. David R. Montgomery, who is a geology professor at the University of Washington, labeled in an article that he wrote, the floods that created these river valleys know alike. And he did that in a 2012 article he wrote for Discover magazine. And Montgomery noted in that same article that the first geologist to propose that the river valleys of eastern Washington were caused by such floods was a gentleman named J. Harlan Bretz. Well, when Bretz first proposed the idea in the 1920s, he was met with widespread disbelief and ridicule. But now, the acceptance of Bretz's observation, the truth of Bretz's observation, is so widespread that at the age of 97, Bretz was awarded the Geological Society of America's highest honor. And it's important to note that the evidence of these ancient flood-carved landscapes is not limited to eastern Washington or to North America. It's also found in Europe and Asia. Also, other geological phenomena demonstrate that at one time or another there was uh, really megalithic hydrodynamic forces acting on the earth. There are huge boulders perched on the tops of mountains in many parts of the world 
that are distinctly different from their surroundings. It's hard to see how they would have arrived there unless they were carried to their positions by an enormous force such as that that would be available during a flood. So, in other words, there is substantial evidence all over the surface of the earth that at one point the entire surface of the earth was affected by a major, one or more, major hydrological forces. Now, we recognize it anchored by truth that not all observers will agree with this conclusion. But the main point is that there is plenty of evidence, both from paleontology and geology, that is consistent with the biblical account. And though all people might not agree with our conclusions or arrive at the same conclusion about what the evidence means, that doesn't do away with the evidence. I think that's a point that should be emphasized. Just because there are people who are not persuaded that the fossil or geologic evidence demonstrates the certainty of Noah's flood does not do away with the evidence. Disbelief in the occurrence of Noah's flood does not render the account any less likely. Science provides solid support that the earth contains physical remains of one or more past cataclysmic floods. Everyone is free to evaluate the evidence and arrive at their own conclusions. But it is entirely reasonable for Christians to use science as well as scripture in their pursuit of truth. So again, what we see is that the Bible story makes perfect sense when we compare how the story stacks up against real-world considerations. Exactly. Now, one final reminder for today. By their very nature, past events, especially those of the distant past, like the flood of Noah, cannot be repeated. And frankly, we don't want the flood of biblical proportions to be repeated. So, the only thing that we can do, the only way to make intelligent assessments about whether such a flood ever took place, or at least is highly likely to have occurred, is to look at evidence that is available on the earth today. And as we reminded everyone last time, all investigators, all interpreters of evidence, bring a viewpoint, a lens through which they interpret the evidence. Now, I don't want to call that lens a bias, because the word bias has a negative connotation. But everyone should be aware of their interpretive lens. Well, again, I just want to point out that that interpretive lens is going to be brought to the examination of the evidence, whether the investigator themselves rejects the Bible or believes in the Bible. Everybody is going to bring a lens with them when it comes to an examination of the evidence. And it's particularly important to recognize this fact when it comes to evaluating the historicity of Bible events. That is a very important point. Today, Bible critics may try to criticize, say a geologist, who believes that the Earth's crust provides evidence that a worldwide flood occurred by saying that the geologist is a Christian. But that criticism would be no more valid than someone criticizing a non-Christian geologist who doesn't believe a flood occurred by pointing out that a geologist isn't a Christian. It's no more fair to say that a Christian geologist can't interpret geologic evidence fairly than to say that a non-Christian geologist can't. Sounds to me like a good time for a prayer. Today, let's listen to a prayer for all of us to receive the illumination we need to bring the light of truth to our friends, community, and the world. Prayer for Illumination by the Holy Spirit Great and mighty God, You are the searcher of men's hearts and the only true joy for our souls. We worship gladly the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
Holy Spirit, you came to take away our spiritual blindness and to make us alive to things of God. At Pentecost, you confirmed your presence in the world and established your dominion in the hearts of those who belong to the Son. We praise you because you are the one who strengthens us against the powers of wickedness that attack our humanity. By ourselves, we could never stand against the wiles of the evil one. But in you we have victory, for greater are you than Satan who is in the world. Holy Spirit, you regenerate our hearts and bring light to our mind. Since you fully possess all knowledge and wisdom, you are the supreme teacher who imparts wisdom and give us the ability to absorb and understand that which you teach. Lord, we pray that we would be sensitive to your leading. Time and again you have gone before us to find the path that we should travel, and you have never left us, even in those times we have grieved you or resisted your work. We marvel at the grace manifested to us by you, abiding with us and with the angels cry, Holy, holy, holy is our God, and worthy to be praised. We bow before the light of our lives, the Lord of the universe, the Lamb of God. In Christ's precious name, we pray and give thanks. Amen. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalcbooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is.